Hey guys, what is up? Welcome to the Find Your Edge podcast. I'm your host, Michael. I'm a registered dietitian and sports nutritionist, and I'm talking with athletes and experts about the key actionable things you can do to improve your health and performance. So let's jump right in. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the Find Your Edge podcast. I am here today with Brian Wade, sports psychologist at The Endurance Edge. Thanks so much for being here, Brian. I'll, uh, I'll kind of let you take the reins and introduce yourself and talk a little bit more about specifically about what you do. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, and, and thanks for having me. Um, my name is Brian, and uh, I'm a sport and performance psychologist. And I've been in that field for uh, over a decade now, um, ranging from working with military to athletes to you know corporate world uh, executives, uh, so really all facets of human beings uh, is is really who I've I've worked with. Cool. Uh, so, uh, how did you, I guess, get into sports psychology and performance psychology? Like, is that when you were you know, getting out of high school or whatever it was, is that what you knew you wanted to do or how did you kind of stumble into that? Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I consider myself very lucky when I left high school, I had heard about uh, sports psychology and I've been extremely lucky in that thus far I'm able to go to school. I studied, I got a degree and job working in the field that I, you know, heard about when I was in high school and left high school saying that's, that that's what I wanted to do. So um, I came about it because I was an athlete in high school and I was kind of that stereotypical, uh, you know, athlete that in practice was really, really good. And then come game time, there just wasn't that connection. Uh, I wasn't able to carry over the same level of performance and I didn't know what was going on. And I wish that, you know, I was more familiar with sports psychology or had a sports psych that I could have talked to back then to help me. So I, I remember reading an article about it and um, basically right when I was leaving high school and it just fascinated me that there was an entire industry uh, that focused solely on just the mental aspect of sport and performance. Yeah. I mean, that's like a thing that I hadn't really heard of when I first started like into my sports journey, but it was really like, I mean, within the last, like since the two thousands, you know, that was a huge thing. You start hearing about like Michael Phelps at the Olympics, like picturing races and stuff like that. And like, it really like became more of a mainstream thing. I feel like for, for people to focus on the mental aspect of things. Yeah. I mean, even in the, you know, 12 years since I've, you know, been, you know, have left graduate school, it's exploded. Um, when I left grad school, you know, the piece of the pie, if you will, for uh, sports psychologists in the athletic industry was, you know, less than probably 2%. It was filled with folks that are just as important and, you know, arguably more important, the strength and conditioning specialists, um, you know, nutritionists and dietitians and, you know, physical therapists, you know, folks that obviously uh, have that need in that realm. Uh, but in the last 10, 12 years, that piece of the pie for sports psychology has absolutely expanded. And I, I always say that sports psychology right now is where strength and conditioning was in like the eighties into the nineties, where even professional sports teams, they didn't have dedicated strength coaches. They had like a maybe a personal trainer, but the athletes didn't use them. They thought it was a joke. They didn't need to do it. 
but now if there's any team, even, I mean, high school level that doesn't have a strength and conditioning certified specialist, you know, they know that they're behind. Uh, and so that's where sports psychology is now, uh, where strength and conditioning was in the eighties and nineties. That's really interesting. And I think, um, I, I think that's an interesting observation too, because I, we see it even with nutrition, you know, I mean, you look at like professional sports and not every team has a dietitian necessarily. Like you'll see, like, I mean, I see it from the dietitian side at like conferences and stuff. You'll see someone and they're the dietitian for, you know, 10 teams across multiple disciplines. Like it'll be like a couple of baseball teams, a couple of football teams. And it's because they're basically like a part-time kind of thing. Mm. Um, but it, I think it's changing, you know and I mean? To this perspective of like sports psychology, I think that's changing as well because people see the benefit of having those like subject matter experts around to like address all the facets. Like you can spend 40 hours a week, like a basketball player, you can spend 40 hours a week doing basketball drills, shooting, all that kind of stuff. But like, there's all these other aspects that also affect your performance. And so if you can address all of them, it's even more beneficial. Yeah. And I totally agree. For a long time, my field was set up just like that example you gave with the dietitians. Uh, you know, one person would be contracted with five different sports teams, and they'd they would fly them in, and they'd spend a weekend with that team, and then see them again a month later. Uh, and that's obviously, I mean, if if you're a dietitian, that's not effective. If you're a strength coach, that's not effective. If you're a mental performance coach, that's not it's not effective. There's so much time lost in between, and you don't develop any relationships and players just look as look at you as, you know, you're not part of the team. You don't really, you know, you're not here to help. But now, um, I mean, nearly every baseball team, the majority of basketball and football and NHL are all growing towards, they have a full-time member on staff that travels with the team and works with minor league, just like, dietitians are starting to you know become embedded within the teams and travel and you know all of that so it's great that they're starting to treat athletes as human beings and trying to have that like you said subject matter expert available for all facets of a human being to help them do their job well that's cool so what I mean, what do you kind of do with like, especially athletes, like, what is it that you kind of look at? What is it? What are some things that you guys can work on together? Like what, I guess, what issues can you help them with? Like, how can you aid performance? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately it, it boils down to the mental side of, of what they're doing. Uh, often the individual has the ability to, perform at their best on any given day, but they get in their own way in the process. Uh, so, you know, topics around motivation, uh, you know, to, it, it sounds cheesy, but what is the why behind, you know, your reasonings to do this? Why did you choose to do this hard thing? Uh, you know, what is getting you out of the bed when it's, you know, North Carolina summers and it's already 105 with a thousand percent humidity and you've got to go on a 12 miler. Like, what is really motivating you to get up and do that aspects like goal setting, goal setting, you know, appropriately. Um, I, I like to think of it more about goal achievement versus goal setting. Cause everyone sets goals, but not everybody actually follows through and achieves them. Uh, self-talk is probably one of the biggest things uh, and probably one of the largest areas where folks defeat themselves and get in their own way. 
Uh, so really just getting them to understand the power that the language has on the physiology on, you know, even down to a hormonal level uh, and what impact that has on your ability to perform. And then conversely, how do you then control it or how do you, you know, flow with it so that it does uh, benefit you uh, working on different self-regulation techniques. So breathing techniques, development of pre-performance routines. Um, I mean, really you name it. If it, if you feel at any point like you've just not been able to get up and do your best, there's probably a mental aspect behind it. It's probably not necessarily coming from the, the, you know, the physical or the training standpoint. So, I mean, kind of to take things back a step, you kind of said some of it, like if you're feeling like a lack of motivation or like struggling, like getting out there and stuff, but how, how might someone know it's kind of time to seek out a sports psychologist? Like, are there like any big signs that someone should, should really consider that? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's the, the obvious signs, you know, there's, you know, you hit a slump, right? So in the endurance world, you know, now your splits are, you know, going back to what they were maybe three months prior. Um, you know, th that example of just no longer really maybe finding the energy or the motivation or the excitement to get out and, and train. And there's a difference between waking up one day and just being really tired and that holding you back versus just this feeling of just constant dread or impending doom of what you're <laughs> getting ready to go do. Um, but, but I do want to be careful in making sure that folks understand that seeking out sports psychology is not only for when things are going wrong. Just like you don't go to a dietitian, you don't go to uh, you know, a, a physiologist only when things are going bad. Oftentimes I've worked with a lot of clients that are actually really high performers and maybe they've had a blip on their record somewhere and they want to just address that. But I've also worked with a large number that are high performers anyways, and they just want to keep it going. They want to make themselves even higher performers. So, you know, I always say you don't have to be sick to get better. You don't have to be broken in order to get better. Um, so as far as what are the, the telltale signs, I mean, there's those classic ones I mentioned, but then also it's just the idea of I could be better than what I am right now. So let me go see if I can get some additional strategies, some additional help from someone just to unlock that additional potential that's within me, whether or not things are going poorly. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I got out of talking. You know, I talked with Chris and Sarah. We talked to like nutrition perspective. And then I talked with Sherry about it from like the, you know, massage and body work perspective. But it's like, it keeps like one of the recurring themes across all of the fields is prevention is like a lot easier than treatment. So it's a lot easier to address these things before it's a problem and to like keep things in a good place than once it's gotten really bad to try to turn the bus around. Absolutely. I, I would 100, actually, I would a thousand percent agree with that. So, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, just like the overarching theme is like, don't wait until things are a problem to try to address it. It's better to try to keep things in a good place. Um, so with that being said, what can someone kind of expect out of a session with you and how many, or in general, a sports psychologist and how many sessions can they expect? Like, is this I guess, like the interval at which they should see you. Is this one of those things where they can kind of do like a monthly tune-up, like checking in, or is it like, and I, I guess some of that depends on circumstances, but I'll let you, you kind of take the, the reins on it. Yeah, so 
it, it certainly is circumstantial. Um, I would say that in general, if there's nothing specific that an individual wants to work on, but they just want to remain optimized or just kind of checking in monthly is probably, that's fine. That, that's good enough. There's a lot of high level athletes that I've worked with that, you know, we, we talk maybe once a month and it's like 30 minutes uh, and that's good enough for them. I will say that typically the closer you get to one of your main events, uh, to, to, to a performance, to a race, uh, that cycle kind of condenses a little bit because all of the things that maybe we've talked about up to that point should be now really ramping up and being put into practice. And so that's where it's maybe every other week, even every week, uh, checking in because you want to make sure. And I want to make sure that what we talked about on the last call has been working. And so if too much time goes in between, then that's a lot of lag time where you are maybe doing an ineffective habit or practicing a strategy, maybe incorrectly or whatever it is where it needs to be addressed. It should have been fixed. So I don't want too much time to go between that. So just, just like you would taper in your training for an event, there's almost a reverse taper in sports psychology services where if you're six months out, eight months out, I don't need to talk to you all the time, right? You're building up your base, you're building up your foundation, but as you get closer and we're really reining in on what that, you know, uh, what your pre-race routine looks like and what your self-talk is going to look like and what your breathing strategies are going to look like. Well, as you are starting to really refine all of your techniques and, and your tactics from the physical side of things, you also need to be doing that on the mental side of things. And so checking in more frequently, it just makes more sense so that we can make those real time changes. Um, so yeah, I think I answered your question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too. Cause I think, um, I mean, one of the things I think of is like typically when someone hits like their taper before a race, that's when they start to like question a lot of their training. They're like, man, maybe I should go hit some more intervals or something. Like I'm not so confident in X, Y, Z part of my training. And so we start to get like, I mean, going into what you said, some of the like self doubt and like, we start to like, have some potentially negative self-talk and stuff like that. So because we have more free time on our hands and stuff like that. And so I think as you're hitting that taper and you're getting more free time and those thoughts start to creep in, it's good from that perspective too, to ramp up the sports psychology, to combat some of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one thing's going down, the other one should be ramping back up, you know, let's fill that training time uh, with another form of training uh, to kind of, you know, kind of mitigate some of those taper tantrums that a lot of folks have. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so I kind of want to do like, I guess, specific, uh, not maybe a case study, but kind of specific examples. So say someone's a high performing athlete, they're, they're doing well, they've, they don't necessarily have like, um, performance shyness or anything. It's not like they're good in practice, poor in, poor in races or whatever it is. Say they're just like pretty good. Um, they stay healthy. They're like not burnt out, anything like that. They've still got pretty good motivation. Like what's something that you would talk with them about? Like potentially, I mean, I've obviously every individual is different. Everybody has different things going on in their mind, but like what were, what would be some things you look for? Yeah. So, I mean, with an individual like that, if everything is going as, you know, perfectly smooth, as you said, I'd say, okay, so how do we get you better? Uh, you know, what's, what's been your PRs in the past? What's keeping you from getting five minutes off of that time or a minute off of that time or whatever it might be. 
Um, and then saying, okay, well, how can we optimize what you're already doing, which you're already doing pretty well at this point, but how can we maybe make some tweaks on that? What is, you know, what does that morning of routine look like? Uh, you know, where historically in the past, even though you're a high performer, we all suffer little blips and lapses, you know, and, you know, moments during races before. So, you know, if it's, you know, if it's a half marathon, where do you usually reach that sticking point? How do you usually push through it? Maybe there's a way in which we can either, you know, mitigate the full impact of that hitting of the wall or wherever they've maybe hit that blip before, or maybe there's a way we can condense the effect of it so that now you're overcoming it quicker and you're actually able to get back on pace a little bit quicker. And now you've shaved 30 seconds off of, you know, your PR. So you can always get better, right? Where no one has, you know, maxed it out. Uh, you know, it's interesting, like the, the, the Nike two hour project, I'd say that guy's a pretty damn good runner, like yeah. he's pretty good. <laughs> And he is working with a sports psychologist. Now he's got this whole team of other, you know, you know, scientists and everybody trying to perfect every possible thing. And even in that person who is setting world records is working with, you know, sports psychologists to try to make sure that even in this attempt of a world record and a furthering of a PR, there's just as smooth of a mental ride as possible. Yeah, I think one of the big things I pulled out of that is kind of like mental resiliency. I mean, especially like for a high performing athlete, someone who's at like the top of their game, potentially, I mean, you look at like tiny amounts of time, then, you know, for someone who's just getting into running, they may shave minutes off of their PR time heading into their next race. But you look at someone at the top level, they're trying to shave seconds off of their time. And so I mean, that's, you know, a couple of false steps during a race could, could be that time difference. And so from like a mental perspective, it could be just like the mental resiliency so that if you have a weird step through the feed portion of a race or whatever, like you can just get right back on track immediately. And so, I mean, that's, I think where the sports psychology comes in there is, you know, even for high level athletes, maybe it's not huge hiccups in training. Maybe it's not lack of motivation. Maybe it's not all these other things, but like there's always something that you could be doing just a little bit better potentially. Absolutely. And I mean, for the most part, there's a mental component to it. Yeah, that's interesting. So what are like some of the really big barriers that you see? Um, Cause you, you work with, you know, a variety of people, athletes, you talked about some background in military and stuff. What are some like the biggest barriers that you see that keep people from reaching their full potential or achieving better performance? Um, I would say probably the, some of the biggest barriers would be a lack of awareness of self-talk or inner dialogue. Um, so not really paying full attention or realizing what's running through their head because what's running through your head is most likely having a, you know, a negative impact uh, emotionally, physically, hormonally within the body. So the lack of awareness on that lends itself to having a lack of regulatory control over it as well. You can't control something or regulate something if you're not aware that it's even happening. Um, I would say I usually get some of the biggest light bulbs from clients when um, on just the acceptance of nerves, you know, quote unquote nerves. Uh, just so many folks have been conditioned and socialized, whatever you want to call it, to just think that those are bad things. And when they happen, that means that you're not ready. You're not confident, you know, whatever it might be. Um, 
And I mean, I've worked with a lot of high level folks and I've coached them through all that. And still, you know, in like an Olympic trial situation, they'll feel, you know, the heart rate spike and the, the fluttering in their stomach. And they'll even have that moment of like, Oh shit, you know, like, Oh man, like I'm not ready. But then they've got the strategies in place or whatever we've, you know, talked and developed with them to kind of work through it. So it's not something that ever really goes away, but the barrier is the inability to kind of talk yourself through it and work yourself through it. Uh, so really it's the lack of awareness on the, on the brain, what's really flowing through it and just the lack of awareness and regulatory ability over the body uh, in those moments. That's really interesting. Um, and I think, there's like a huge tie to nutrition there as well. As you think about lining up for a race, if you get those nerves and stuff, like then a lot of people I think get into like a vicious cycle of like, Oh shit, I'm nervous. And then they get nervous about being nervous. And then just like gets worse and worse and worse. And like from the nutrition perspective, like anxiety, stress, nerve, nervousness, and all of that can like affect digestion and like our ability to process, like even our nutrition during our, our runs and stuff. And so like, then you've got yourself in like a really bad place and like you haven't even started running yet. Yeah, absolutely. You, yeah, I mean, fight or flight shuts down digestion. So if you've put something in your stomach that is designed to really help you and give you, a, you know, a slow release of, you know, nutrition and feed for whatever it is, but you've shut down your digestive processes because you've gotten yourself so nervous, then whatever you just ingested isn't going to do anything for you. It's going to yeah. take longer for all that to kind of kick in and hit your system. Yeah. So potentially like some of it would be like developing strategies to be able to be like, okay, I'm nervous. You know, that's good. I can keep like a little bit of an edge, but like calm down just a little bit and not like work yourself up into a frenzy. Yeah. And I mean, and also just recognizing that you're not nervous, you're calling it nervous, but what's happening in your body is what's happening. If it was good or bad, you know, nervousness looks a lot like excitement. It's just totally the way in which you frame it. Yeah. Your heart rate spikes up to 190 beats per minute. In one situation, you might say that fast heart rate is nervousness. In another situation, you might say that fast heart rate is excitement. So it's all in which the way in which you, you, you know, you frame it and the way in which you define or kind of label or appraise what you're going through. That's really interesting. And I'm kind of, I'm glad, not kind of glad. I'm really glad that you brought up like the reframing thing. Cause that kind of leads into another question I wanted to ask you. So with challenges like, and barriers like injury or, um, you know, yeah, injury is a big one or things like right now, like that's super relevant is COVID and like, you know, weird pandemics that might pop up, you know, nobody can predict that, but with stuff like that, how can you kind of reframe and view that in a positive light instead of just like getting really down in the dumps about stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, in those situations, you need to have the ability and the power to really just kind of slow things down and, think about what do I really have control over and then exert my influence on that. You know, things like, you know, this whole pandemic and all the different situations that are going on around that, you know, even things with injuries, there's so many things that are outside of an individual's control, but those are the things that we tend to put most of our focus on, which drive up anxiety, which, which drive up nerves and cause us to feel frustrated in those moments. Whereas even amidst a pandemic and shutdowns and even amidst injuries, there are still things within your control that you can put your focus on and put your energy on. So instead of, you know, when we get injured, we tend to think about all the things we can't do. Let's focus on what those things are that we actually can do. And let's absolutely maximize those things that we can do. And let's not measure our progress in grand events, but let's measure our progress in granular events. 
okay, how, how far were you able to walk today without pain? How far were you able to walk yesterday without pain? Look, you walked two more steps, right? You have to be able to give yourself some of that credit uh, and kind of uh, really appreciate and celebrate those small victories. And in regards to the whole pandemic situation, there's nothing that you can control that's going to open things up faster or, you know, any of that. But there are things that you can control from, you know, a training perspective. No one is locking you in your house. You have the ability to go out, right? So how can you be creative? Maybe there's some garage work you can do. Maybe there's, you know, intervals if you can only use your street and you don't feel comfortable going elsewhere or whatever it might be. But what do you have control over and put your focus and energy onto those? If you think about all the things outside of your control, you're just going to curl up in a ball and get frustrated. Yeah, I really like that. And I think one of the things I really took out of that is like resiliency, especially when it comes to injuries, being able to like shift your focus and like kind of bounce back. Because I mean, you see it. I mean, you'll see some really high level athletes that amazingly go their entire career with very little injury. Then you see some who are continuously injured and like the resiliency to kind of just work through those injuries, get back and just like perform as best as you can while you've got that health. And then like an injury may come up or it may not, you don't know, but you've kind of, you can't like, just cause you've had two injuries in a row, you can't just like be like, ah, oh, maybe this professional sport isn't for me. You got to like be able to bounce back. Yeah. And again, it, it, a lot of that boils down to, you know, going to it a different realm of motivation as well. Right. So if the reason why you want to do what you are trying to do is strong and it's really coming from within your core, you're going to want to do it. If you're just doing it to get a trophy, but that's, I mean, for most people, that's probably not going to be enough to have them get up and understand that there is maybe a potential risk for injury, but you have to have the right source of motivation in order to help you kind of push through that. Same thing with confidence. Confidence is probably one of the biggest issues coming back from injury. Once an individual is able to get back on the field, back on the road, whatever it might be, there's, you know, hesitations uh, in training. There's hesitations to really kind of push oneself because there's not a lot of confidence in, in the leg and the knee and, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, and so there's a, there's always a big thought that, well, I have to feel confident in order to get out and do it. But the feeling does not have to precede the action. Sometimes you have to be able to tap into motivation, tap into resilience, tap into self-talk, just getting yourself out there, do the action. And then maybe the feeling will come later and it'll come after. And then that can kind of start that process. That's really cool. That's like one of the, my wife's like harped on that is like action precedes motivation. She's also a dietitian, And so like, we talk a lot about like, how can people continue with their goals and stuff? And one of the things people talk about is like, Oh, I'm just not feeling motivated. And like, you know, her big thing is like, sometimes you just have to take the first step. And then, you know, once you start running, you're like, Oh man, this feels good. And then that gives you the motivation as opposed to like always looking for motivation to drive the training or the good nutrition or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because I think a lot of people don't really know what motivation is. They think motivation is this like overwhelming sense of hype. Like if your heart's not pounding through your chest and you're ready to run through a wall, then you're not motivated. But yeah. that's not necessarily what it has to be. I mean, that, that's a, that's a version of it. Motivation is just simply, I choose to do that right now. I mean, that that's, that's all it simply is. It's, 
there's a cup of water in front of you or there's a cup of soda and you choose the water that you are motivated to choose the action of drinking water. You're not hyped to drink the water. You're not like, yeah, water. <laughs> yeah. But you're, you, you are just choosing that action. You're choosing that because it's coming from a place. You're more motivated to make that decision. And so I think that's a really interesting comment that you made, like, you know, what your wife sees. Cause I think a lot of people think if you're not ready to run through the door, then you're not ready to go out on a run that day. And really motivation is just very simply it's you are choosing things because there's a reason why you're choosing them. Yeah. I like that. And one of the other things you said that really, I mean, that was really interesting to me is focusing on controlling what you can, because there's so much stuff we can't control. And so instead of fixating on all the stuff that kind of happens to us is like choosing to control what you actually have control over. Like, and the same thing goes for like nutrition or performance or whatever, like other aspect. I think that's a really like a deeper trend is like focus on the stuff you can control. I mean, there's like, a ton of stuff you can't, but there's also a ton of stuff that you can. Mm -hmm. Um, and so instead of like using all this energy that you could be like focusing on yourself with, you're focusing on like all this other stuff that like, no matter how much energy you put into it, it's not going to be like even the slightest bit different. Yep. Absolutely. So that's interesting. I really like that. Um, so what are, cause I always like to kind of circle back to this, what are like the two to three biggest things that you think someone can do to like improve their mental game when it comes to performance? Um, so I would say, uh, you know, build the awareness of what you're saying to yourself. Uh, start to really pay a little bit more attention on that. Uh, you know, when you're going out and, you know, if, if you're out on a long run or if you're out on a long ride or, you know, in the pool, whatever it might be, uh, just occasionally check in, especially when, you know, you're feeling a little slow, a little sluggish, tired, getting a little fatigued, you know, whatever it is, but just check in and just take stock of, you know, the thoughts that you're having, um, start to build the awareness, start to do a little bit of like a trend analysis as I call it and say, okay, when I was really grooving and, you know, hitting strides and, you know, kind of just in that flow, here's what I was thinking kind of like right before it, or maybe even during it, uh, when I got out of it and I was, you know, a little bit slower sluggish and feeling fatigued. Here's some of the language that I had. You want to start to look for, you know, triggers and themes and, and tendencies and, you know, essentially the, the flavor of the languages, uh, that's going through your mind. So, tapping in, building awareness. If you're not able to get out and, you know, do some of those things to actually get it, you know, real, real world sampling, and then just do some good reflections. Think about some of the, the races that you've had. And this is what I'll do on a lot of, you know, first time calls with folks. I'll say, Hey, you know, take me back to the best race you, you you've had and take me back to the, the worst race you've had and just kind of tell me what were some of the things going through your mind? You know, what, cause some of those things to go through your mind, um, you know, before, during, after, so on and so forth. So build up that wealth of knowledge of how, you, you know, awareness of how you talk to yourself and then try to create uh, some framework and some discipline around reframing and recognizing, Hey, when that thought comes in, what am I now going to replace it with? What, how am I going to combat that thought? How am I going to, you know, tell myself in a realistic way so that I'll believe it, 
I'm actually not that tired. I can continue to go on or I can push a little bit more. And that's, that, that takes work because you can't just lie to yourself. The brain knows, <laughs> right? The, the brain will go, that's, that's, a, that's a load of BS. And it'll go right back to saying, you're really tired. Let's slow down a little bit. So that's effortful, but you've got to be able to build that up. And then the second thing is really just developing an overall mental toolkit. Um, and that's kind of a cheap way out because that your toolkit should have everything in it. Uh, but number one is always awareness of language. What's going through? What's that dialogue? How is it impacting you? And then the second one is, you know, look into breathing techniques. How can they benefit you? How can they impact you for whatever the situation is that you've got going on? How can you uh, develop uh, pre-performance routines, whether that's night of routines, morning of routines, uh, creating smoother transitions mentally. Uh, if you're, you know, doing a multi-stage type event, um, you know, looking into sleep techniques, sleep tactics, that's actually a really big area um, that I do a lot of coaching on more. So I did it with military and I do it with corporate, but I've certainly done it uh, with several clients uh, with the endurance edge. And, you know, am I sleeping well enough to maximize my performance? Basically just fill up that toolkit with as much, you know, of the mental skills and strategies. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And one of the like big things I took away from that is like, it's a lot of the times it's little things. It's like little stuff adds up. So it's like, let's address, you know, a little bit of talk here. Let's address like, let's do little things to improve sleep. Let's do little things here. And like all that, those little steps really add up to make really big differences. Absolutely. That's one of my favorite stories is the, uh, the aggregation of uh, marginal gains. And I sign all of my emails with 1% at the bottom. And that's kind of the, the highlight from that story where 1% is imperceptible. You don't know what that difference is, but you know, 1% over time, little by little, a little becomes a lot. Uh, and so, you know, when I'm working with someone over time, I tell them, you know, we are building this plane as we're flying it we're not waiting until the end of, you know, six calls, five calls, six months, whatever it might be. And then saying, okay, now go put all this into action. It should have been, Hey, at the end of call one, I left you with a strategy. You started to put that into action. Call two, we reflect on that. We make some tweaks. Now let's add in another one. Call three. Now we're really refining all the way back from call one strategy. We're making those tweaks to the call two strategy now here's another one for call. I mean, and that's how it should look where you're building this and you are getting that aggregation of, of marginal gains as we go and as we build this plan. I like that. And one of the other things that you had talked about in like your big three was the awareness and mindfulness. And like, it's amazing how, like I'm seeing all these similarities between like sports psych and nutrition. And like one of the biggest things people can do is just like an awareness. Like if you just go through your day, like mindlessly, like it is amazing how much stuff happens that you're just like not even aware of what, as soon as you start thinking about it and to your point, like when you're out, like on your run or whatever, and you're like, Oh man, I'm starting to get tired. Like just being aware of like, what's actually happening. Like, is it, you're running out of breath? Like, are your legs tired? Like, are you dehydrated? Like checking in with what it is, because then to your point, like if you can diagnose what's actually going on and be like aware of what the root of the problem is, if it's just, Oh man, my left foot is tired. You can be like, okay, well it's really not that, I can't possibly go faster. It's just that this one part of me is tired or whatever it is. And it's the same way with food. Um, you know, if like, 
just being aware people do stuff like differently and better. Like when they, as soon as they start thinking about it, people like automatically start to choose the water instead of the soda. They drink more water than they would otherwise. And so like just, just that one piece, just thinking about it, people do better with stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to always say I could tell, uh, you know, if I would go and observe a practice or a training somewhere, uh, it was always funny to watch as soon as I was visible, the athletes or the soldiers, whoever it was, like they would look over and see, and then I would see them like, you know, taking their deep <laughs> breath and, you know, kind of really engaging in some, you know, deliberate routine. So it, it is always funny that that awareness is absolutely key because it does engage action. So what I'm hearing is like athletes, any of the soldiers and stuff, and you just carry a picture of you around as like a reminder <laughs> to like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that would work. <laughs> so it sounds like really like some of my biggest takeaways to like, also, you know, you got your summary, but like some of my big takeaways were just being aware, like checking in, seeing what's going on and being mindful about like how you're feeling, what your thought process is. Uh, also just building some resiliency, like how can we kind of reframe things to be able to like hop back on our game quickly <laughs> and then really connecting with your why, like having a really strong why, knowing why you want to do stuff is really like a key thing you can do to tap into potentially greater, greater performance. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. That's good takeaways. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had to take notes, man. You were, you were hitting all this like really good fire info. So I had to, to, to write it down. <laughs> Thank you. Um, any other parting shots, anything else you want to add? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm here to help. Um, so, you know, I do everything remotely. I'm located in Florida, uh, not in North Carolina. Um, and, I, you know, I, I know if you were to look online and look at my schedule of availability, I think it was set up for like every other Sunday. Uh, but really, I mean, ultimately, if, if one of the athletes that is a member wants help, I will more than more than happy set aside some time and find help. Uh, my evenings are actually usually pretty available and I can always carve time out on the weekend. So uh, I, I am here to help in any way, shape or form. Uh, and I would love to, you know, hear from some folks. Uh, so yeah, feel free to reach out. Awesome. So what's the best way for people to like kind of connect with you? Is it to like shoot you an email? Is it really just to schedule one of those session sessions to kind of get things rolling? Yeah. I mean, email, obviously that works fine. Um, cool. you know, they can just do a direct schedule if they want. Um, but they're more than, you know, I'm more than happy for them to exchange a couple emails if they want to do that first. Awesome. Cool. I will link kind of a link to be able to sign up for a session with you in the description for this, this episode. And I'll go ahead and link your email in there so that people can find you pretty easily anywhere else. People can kind of find you or connect with you. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got, you know, my own personal social medias, but I'm not very, you know, active on those. Um, <laughs> but yeah, both of them are just underscore Brian Wade. All right. Nice and simple. Yeah. Cool. I'll, I'll link those too, in case people want to connect with you other ways, kind of, uh, see, see your life through a different lens, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I do occasionally get onto the, uh, endurance edge insiders group on facebook so they can always just ask a question and tag my name in it and i will most likely get a notification um so yeah if they've got just kind of quick questions that they want to ask put them in there as well cool yeah and i think one of the other things is you know if people have questions and maybe they can't find your email or whatever they're more than welcome to ask literally anybody at the edge and we can put them in touch with you so that's true that's also yeah very true 
Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I learned a ton. I think this will be a really like impactful episode for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I think you may have a huge uptick in, in some of your scheduling, hopefully. Yeah. I'd love to help. That'd be awesome. Thank you for your time. I I had a, a good time. This was fun. Yeah. I think we'll probably have to have you back on to talk about some other stuff as well. I mean, we got into some really big stuff. I mean, I think talking about sleep, anything like that, there's always, there's always a lot to talk about. Sure. Would love to. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thanks.